Welcome to the Social Ideas Podcast, brought to you by the Cambridge Centre for Social Innovation. This series looks through the lens of those striving for a better world. I'm Pam Mungru. Lamu County in Kenya is home to the Safari Doctors, a mobile healthcare venture which brings together medical personnel, drugs and transportation to the doorstep of rural communities. Umra Omar is the founder and director of the social enterprise. And at first I thought it would be just, you know, my give back once a month, $500 from New York. Instead of drinking my Starbucks cappuccino, I would just, you know, I would send my monthly savings to pay for a nurse and a motorbike uh, fuel every month. I did that month one, month two, and then, you know, kept on doing it, kept on doing it. And now it's been six years. And it just like organically grew from like a motorbike and a nurse, a hundred women a month. And then we extended more villages and it just really picked traction. And then we got the CNN Heroes Award and I was like, oh my God, now it means we really have to amp our game a little bit more. I asked Umra what the challenges are of providing safe, affordable medical care in a country such as Kenya. So in Kenya and in Africa as a whole, we are a continent that says um, over 70% of our population is in rural areas. And the booming age range is the youth under 35, under 30. So this challenge, though, has is yet to be fully embedded into the realities of health intervention. Whereas we have had this top-down approach to addressing healthcare that's around static facilities in urban areas so that there's enough traffic, but yet a bigger percentage of our population is in remote area. So what we've done is come into this space and really shown how investing in the youth as community health workers around the concept of mobile health is actually more cost effective and has a bigger uh, footprint. Um, we're talking of addressing preventative and primary health care in real time and reducing the burden on secondary healthcare facilities. And at the same time, how do we infuse this narrative that our solutions can be locally grown and we can literally fill in this need for universal health care from a very basic level? So can you explain then how the Safari Doctors actually works? What is it that you do to provide the care? So what we do is we travel to 24 villages once a month to ensure that the kids in that village are 100% vaccinated, whoever needs a vaccine, to make sure that family planning is at the footsteps of women, as opposed to, you know, a young mother of two or three kids having to figure out where to travel to their nearest dispensary in order just to get assistance in planning their births. And in addition to that, it's like a dispensary basic service where something as simple as getting a painkiller is actually a luxury that we take for granted that you can go to a pharmacy or a kiosk, yet you have a whole village that can access that. And when we stepped in was in 2014, when Lamu experienced its worst terror attack at a time when foreign organizations were leaving the area at a time where there was uh, mobility is uh, a bigger issue for rural communities. So for us, it was a very timely presence around healthcare access. You've mentioned some of those challenges that the individual living in a, in a rural village will face, but what are the challenges that you have had to deal with to make this venture work and for it to be accepted? I remember when we first started working and the question I used to get a lot was, you know, so 
So who are you working for? Like which foreign aid organization is this? And there's just this basic assumption that for us as a grassroots community-based organization, there has to be some bigger umbrella or voice or specifically like a white man behind what you guys are doing. So I think one of the first challenges was just really changing that narrative that, um, you know, yes, we can have young people. Yes, we can have uh, people that originate from here delivering a project at, you know, global standards. So my big challenge was putting together an institution that's financially sound. We can account for all that we're doing. We can um, share our impact and, and really meet the standards that we've been put up to. And it was also at a time when there's the issues of the security challenge, which although for us did not feel like a big threat because we are on the ground, but the media and this, uh, it's just been over sensationalized that Lamo as this, you know, like danger zone with travel advisories. There's some partners that are like, we can't support you because we can't come for our site visits to see what you're doing. And that's slowly diminishing over time as we realize, you know, the whole world is interconnected and uh, Lamu is safer than Paris or New York um, if we really talk about the real numbers behind uh, insecurity. But other than that, I would be counting more gains than I would be challenges with what we've been able to achieve with such an intact, lean team on the ground. And what are those gains then that you have managed to affect? So the gains has been one to disrupt the status quo around what constitutes a functional institution and that local rapport. So we build local rapport with the community leadership, with the young people, with the institutions here. And yet I can sit here as a founder at age 37 and say that, you know, I'm the second oldest person in the organization and everybody else is under 35. So that for me is a huge, huge gain in in a society that's very conservative and very patriarchal. So being able to show an like an alternate journey for that. And then being able to make that real time impact where we go in a clinic and we are accessible to the people's health needs. We can facilitate referrals that somebody otherwise wouldn't be able to. Another huge gain is accountability, the trust that we've been able to um, build, both looking bottom and both looking at the top from the level of partnerships that we have. And the, you know, the young girl that we can see and feels like she sees herself in, in the work that we do and wants to be part of what we do. So as a young woman in a very, as you've described it, traditional, conservative, patriarchal society, how have you managed to get people to come to you and understand what it is that you're doing? First of all, this is home. So as a young woman in such a context, whether, you know, the conservativeness or the patriarchal nature of it, is that I get to come in with a team on the footing that this is also us. So it's, we're not coming in as outsiders. It's like, you know, we are the language. This is what we look like. This is what we eat. So it's a level ground, first of all. 
And then we're also not coming in from an antagonistic, this is the wrong way to do this, or we know best kind of a mentality, which is one of our core values of the organization. So we instituted our values that allow us to navigate and have our presence felt. And one of them is around humility and uh, the courage of being able to navigate these nuances. So if I come in with that cultural awareness, is what's really allowed us to slowly get that seat on the table to say of, okay, this is what we're proposing. How can we do it better? So the communities that we are going in to work with is our own communities. It's our own, you know, aunts and uncles and, uh, and nieces and nephews. And that I think has been really critical in us shifting the power around the NGO world and around the development language, because it's always been a very handout mentality in in programming, as if you're doing somebody a favor, where it's like, no, we've been given that privilege and opportunity to serve. If tomorrow a community that we went in wants nothing to do with what we do, we wouldn't be able to go there anymore. So having that understanding and that mutual respect in the development language, I think has been very critical for us. You mentioned that when you first started, you were going into the different villages and people were saying to you, oh, well, where's the foreign aid group? You're obviously part of that. Is there a distrust of foreign aid groups or is there an assumption that they can do it better than you can? There is that assumption that our solutions and almost our destiny is defined by another, by a third party. And so for us, what's been very satisfying is being like, no, we can be the ones who are, you know, writing our own destiny. And so how do we make that a norm as opposed to an exception? There is always that mindset of, you know, looking up that savior mentality. And I think for me, one of the biggest lessons that I've also learned as Umrah as an individual is that a lot of power comes from within as opposed to from without. And the more we can hammer that in through our education system, through our leadership, through development programs, is where we'll then start decolonizing our way of navigating development. Decolonizing is very much a buzzword at the moment. And one of the things that I found very interesting about it is that like most buzzwords, it's popular, but it doesn't seem to have a huge amount of substance. Do you see the work that you do having substance to not just decolonize, but to unknot the social issues around colonization and and its continued impact? I absolutely see what we do as being a tangible case study of decolonization of development. It is something that's very possible in real time for us to be able to do that. If we're having like, you know, we have 12 staff on our team and about seven of the staff are like young people from these very local communities. If we can run a youth health ambassador program with kids under 25 years old that are agents of change when it comes to healthcare in their communities, that is part of that process as well. If I can sit on a global panel around, you know, shifting power in uh, in developments, that's already a tangible step forward in that. It's a buzzword when it's being used from an angle that it's not coming from the people that it's looking to address. And I think that's where a lot of the terminology the, that we use 
is usually placed upon us by a third party, then it becomes a buzzword. But if the so-called people or uh, entities that we are talking about are the ones who are dissecting and implementing that buzzword, then it becomes an actionable item. How is the Kenyan government helping you with the work that you're doing? So I've always been a strong believer of uh, J.F. Kennedy's quote, where it says it's not what the government can do for you, but what you can do for the government. We have, from the beginning, really emphasized on our collaboration with the county government, which is a devolved function of the Kenya's government. So the health sector is a devolved uh, sector in our constitution. So we make sure we have somebody on board from government. The family planning and all vaccines we get from the government. And so we are playing our part in being a distributor in areas that are hard to reach. There's more of a collaboration and backstopping um, one another. Sometimes, you know, there'd be a stock out on the government side due to bureaucracy and we can step in, especially during the COVID pandemic. There was a few things that we would offload off of uh, one another. So we've been working with the county government more as a, a partner, a real partner and collaborator as opposed to us having our hands sticking out or the government having their hands sticking out. It's a partnership. You talk about COVID. Everywhere has been affected by the the pandemic. Everywhere is battling to get vaccines. Some countries are more successful, obviously, than others. And you've talked also now about the, the partnership that you have with local government. Are you involved in the rollout of the COVID vaccination program? The reality around the pandemic, as far as uh, how far we are from even the vaccination, is just that we've seen a different side effect that on the continent and in Kenya has not been as severely addressed, which is the socioeconomic impact of the pandemic. As much as we were, you know, mimicking the the actions that the West was taking, that Europe was taking, is that the effects on the day-to-day economy of a place like uh, Kenya and in day laborers, the damages around the economics has been way more severe than that around the health impact of the pandemic. And that's what we're now, you know, struggling with as uh, communities is getting back on their feet economy-wise, let alone, you know, starting to push for the vaccination. What is it, do you think, that makes safari doctors socially innovative? The social innovation around what we do is not really anything around rocket science or an invention, but the, the passion of real-time grassroots service and really tapping into Kenya's youth as part of a healthcare solution is that we're talking about a sector that is highly affected by issues around reproductive health, around maternal and child health. And all these are factors that kick in in a population at way early on. So how do we use the same people that end up being the victims of this health crisis as the agents of change for this challenge. So you're looking at how we are equipping, mobilizing, and investing in young people in their communities to address preventative and primary health care, and really infusing the idea around mobile health, not as a one-off activity, but as a consistent model of healthcare in rural communities. So that's where I feel like the innovation really steps in, in how do we 
transform healthcare from static to mobile and using the young people as our foot soldiers, as the barefoot doctors in our communities. Do you find that the young people are willing to get involved or do you have to encourage them a little bit? The young people are very willing to get involved because right now we have a huge vacuum of unemployment at extremely high rates. We have a lot of opportunities of this becoming a key of getting young people to still thrive in their rural areas instead of everybody, you know, fleeing for um, the urban centers and like the overcrowding population, limited opportunities and, you know, that struggle for urban life. So there's a tremendous opportunity if we could figure out through policies and through our systems, infusing the community health worker model as a key pillar of providing healthcare on the on the continent and in Kenya, and then creating this workforce of community health workers instead of investing heavily on the tertiary sector, where you know we're waiting for people to like get sick, and then spending a lot of our resources in trying to undo what could have been you know undone from the very early stage. Umra, what was it that led you to this moment? That's a very interesting question of how did we end up here is that I come from Lamo and I was here on holiday. My background is healthcare. I studied neuroscience, psychology, and then did the, my postgrad in social justice. So there's always been that journey of around healthcare and like human rights. And this was just the perfect manifestation of uh, how I could apply that. So I learned of a medical project that stopped when we had um, kidnappings that happened in Lamu of tourists. And that literally killed that project because it was done from a CSR model. And so when I met the founders of that project, I was like, I'm really keen on doing this. But instead of from a top-down approach, I want to do a bottom-up approach like invest more in the local people and figure out how we can sustain it. And at first I thought it would be just, you know, my give back once a month, $500 from New York. Instead of drinking my Starbucks cappuccino, I would just, you know, I would send my monthly savings to pay for a nurse and a motorbike uh, fuel every month. I did that month one, month two, and then, you know, kept on doing it, kept on doing it. And now it's been six years. And it just like organically grew from like a motorbike and a nurse, a hundred women a month. And then we extended more villages and it just really picked traction. And then we got the CNN Heroes Award. And I was like, oh my God, now it means we really have to amp our game a little bit more. And it just became an organic fit to avoid that was there. As we come to the end of the podcast, one of the things I'd like to know is what is the work that you're doing with women in particular? You've mentioned the work that you're doing with young people and how you're mobilizing them. But in a country that is patriarchal, what are you doing with women? So the number one item that we get to put on the forefront with women is that by the virtue of being a women founded and led organization and me being able to hire more young girls, First is that first step, like, oh, so this is what female leadership could look like, and this is the impact that it could have. And then we have a project where we're really working with men around civic engagement, especially in roles around budget processes in healthcare, um, and using traditional mechanisms of education to engage women. So as opposed to a trainer coming in with a worksheet and a survey and, you know, take this, do this, do that, 
let's say one of one very successful program that we did was getting women to understand their civic spaces using food and poetry. And that was like, you know, a very high impact project where you're using a familiar territory for education and expression. You know, like instead of please uh, rate one to 10 how <laughs> this what you understand, we did a poetry competition. All that you learn, you know, translated into a poem. We got women to gather in spaces through the kitchen, like food competitions, and really kind of now trying to make culturally relevant tools of engagement is what we are pushing for in engaging our women in their front yards and how to make those connections. So that's one of the things that I'm very keen on seeing how we can push further is to move away from this very industrial classroom models of engagement to, you know, more organic and traditional spaces. Finally, what is the future for Safari Doctors? So the future for Safari Doctors is two-pronged. One is refining this model so that it can be institutionalized alongside government health service delivery and not just in Lamo, but also beyond Lamo. And then number two is that we are right now developing our next strategic plan on having our hospital and mothership built where we can have a hub and a center of excellence that you know, our young people can come and train locally as opposed to having to leave the county to then strengthen that community health worker model. So the future looks like this very refined model of a mothership that has an emphasis on mobile healthcare. That was Umra Omar, founder and director of Safari Doctors. You can find out more about the Cambridge Centre for Social Innovation by following us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, LinkedIn and YouTube.